Imagine if you were, you were, uh, let's say, go back 1,500 to 2,000 years, and you are a leader over uh, a uh, numerous, maybe 2 million group, uh, 2 million refugees that have uh, left the country that they grew up in, and now they're wandering in the wilderness uh, on their way to this land that God had promised them, and you knew that as they uh, purposed to enter into this land that God had purposed for them and promised to them, you knew that there was going to be enemies to fight. There were people who lived there, and there was going to be people to fight. You knew that these were people that had different values, uh, worship of uh, idols and uh, immorality certainly did not reflect the godly character of uh, this people that was identified by uh, Yahweh. And not only that, but as their leader, you knew that you would not be there to lead them properly because, because of God's decision in your own life. He wasn't going to allow you to go in with them into this promised land of Canaan. And that's the situation that Moses was in, that uh, as he was preparing to leave and knew that God was not going to allow him. Remember when he struck the rock in anger uh, for some water? God uh, said, uh, because you did this in anger, that his uh, judgment was that he was not going to be allowed to enter with the other children of Israel into uh, Canaan. And so how were you going to communicate and leave this people with a sense of identity and purpose of their calling, uh, of who they were. And so that's kind of a little bit of the motivation behind why Moses uh, is that wrote what we call the five uh, books of the, the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes we call it the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five. Uh, Jews often refer to it as the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so tonight, as we're beginning uh, to talk about Genesis, uh, Moses wanted to give the nation of Israel, give the people of Israel, a sense of identity that they, and of course the generations that would follow, uh, that they would distinctly have an identity of not only who they were as God's people, but what God's expectation uh, would have for their life. Now we know in the scripture that as Moses uh, wrote uh, a history of, of the beginnings of creation, uh, he also wrote uh, based upon what, what many believe that were uh, writings that were available to him that had in some form been passed down. There was what really was a big part was oral traditions, that uh, word of mouth stories of of, uh, of history and events that had taken place. Uh, those were things that he had accessible to, uh, as he wrote uh, the book of Genesis, that he's attributed as the author. And so Moses began to organize and formulate what we have here today as the book of Genesis. Um, now, the reason I kind of point that out is because some would question, well, you know, Moses couldn't have written anything. The, the you know, it was archaic back then, and they certainly didn't have any form of, of communication, writing, and that type of thing. Well, we know from history uh, that that's not true. But even if we just go to the Bible, and I have scriptures there that just, again, I'm not going to read all of them, but just point out uh, that in, uh, in the scriptures we find several occasions where it is written that Moses either wrote in the book or had access to writings uh, that were part of the children of Israel. And there, again, these are in your outline. Exodus 24, 7, it says, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant. There was a book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of all the people and said, The Lord has spoken. Don't, don't miss the connection between what was written and identifying the Lord had spoken, that the words that the Lord had spoken were recorded in a written form that was called this book of the covenant, uh, Exodus 34, 28. So he was there with the Lord 
40 days and 40 nights. He neither, talking about Moses, neither ate bread nor drank water. And he, Moses, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. So writing and recording information, history, uh, was certainly very much a part, and the scripture is very clear on that. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.13, I don't know if I have that. Do I have that, Deuteronomy? Okay. Uh, and this is the Lord speaking here, but he declared to you his covenant to Moses, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he, that is God speaking, God wrote them on two tablets of stone. So God wrote them. Moses uh, uh, was also identified as, as writing them. Uh, Deuteronomy 31.9, it says, Then Moses wrote the law, this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. And uh, one last one, Deuteronomy 31.24, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book, in other words, they're writing and recording history and recording the law and the uh, purposes of God for this nation, we see several accounts that that was clearly done. So it's not a stretch to, uh, when we talk about Moses being the author of the book of Genesis, as well as the other four books of the Pentateuch. Remember, Moses' intent and purpose for writing was to show the people of God their origins, their divine origins. They were unique. They were not like the peoples of other nations. They were unique. They were called and chosen by God. It was to remind them of God's covenant that he had made uh, with Abraham and, and had reiterated that through the patriarchs. Now, when we get to Genesis, and this kind of ties into the, a few things that are a little bit more of just some uh, uh, information that I think is helpful as we begin this study. Genesis the name Genesis is taken, what we call Genesis, that actually is the uh, a Greek word for the beginnings. Uh, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew, uh, I won't try to pronounce the Hebrew, I don't think I could do it, but that title is derived from the first few words of the book of Genesis in the Hebrew that just means in the beginning. So the title Genesis is actually the Greek equivalent uh, you know that the Old Testament was written uh, in Greek and uh, 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 maybe three or four hundred years before Christ, and that is called the Septuagint because that was the language of, uh, of that period of time. And so it made the Old Testament scriptures accessible to not just Jews, but it also made the Old Testament scriptures accessible to other peoples that were Greek language and Greek culture and opened up the, uh, the door for understanding the God of Scripture. The book of Genesis is a book about beginnings. This is where things began, all right? This is a book about beginnings. And while it's the beginning of, uh, according to us, not necessarily, but as much information as we have, the beginning of time and space, of the heavens and the earth, the planets, the solar system, the galaxies, life on earth, this is uh, from the... Uh, tiniest uh, uh, microbe uh, to the mammoth blue whale. Everything goes back to God created. Okay, The Bible says that God created. We're not going to talk about creation so much today. We'll do that next week. But it's also the Genesis sets the stage, if you will, for the grand drama of Scripture. Uh, Genesis sets the stage of everything that was going to precede and why things went the way they did, or why things went bad the way they did. Genesis sets the stage for the drama of redemption, that God is at center, the centerpiece of this work of redemption uh, that we see from Genesis all the way through Revelation. You know, oftentimes we don't really consider that while the book, while Scripture is composed of 66 books, the Bible has a unique uh, symmetry, it has a unique unity to it, and that it actually, even though we can get lost in the details of, say, you know, Jonah and the whale, and we get lost in the tabernacle and the patriarchs and, and Abraham and Moses and all the different minor prophets and all those things, and we kind of just feel like it's this massive jigsaw puzzle, 
But yet, uh, it's important to say, to remind ourselves that there is a unity of Scripture of something that God began in the book of Genesis and was uh, fulfilled and culminated in Christ. And because we have access to the book of Revelation, we see the end of the book and we see the ultimate reconciliation and culmination of God's finished work. But Genesis is where things began, the beginning of the universe, life, man, the seven-day week, marriage, family life, sin, sacrifice, redemption, death, the nations, government, cities, music, literature, art, agriculture, languages, all those things began in the origins of God's creation that we find in Genesis. Now remember, as you approach the Bible, the Bible is not exhaustive history of the world. The Bible is selective history. Just like uh, you remember in John, it says, John, uh, the Gospel of John, John says, if all the things that could be were recorded of the things that happened in Jesus' life were recorded, there's not enough books to contain them. Meaning, John wrote with selective, uh, John was selective history. The Bible is selective history. It's not giving you everything that ever was recorded in human existence. It's selective history of God's people, of God's redemption, of God's work, and here it all begins in the book of Genesis. Now, it's helpful always when you uh, take a, a trip somewhere to have a little bit of a road map, and there's certainly more detailed uh, outlines and those type of things, so I won't get bogged down in that. But there's just some simple structure here that we see in the way that the book of Genesis is structured, okay? And, and so in your handout, you see that one real simple uh, outline is from uh, G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan is an old scholar preacher who's... Uh, uh, long gone, but uh, pastored uh, in London. But I like just the, maybe because I like alliteration, but he says chapters 1 and 2 is generation. Chapters 3 through 11, uh, degeneration. And from chapter 12, that's the covenant of Abraham forward, speaks about regeneration. So another outline that's there is in chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. Chapter 12, the reason it's divided there is because chapter 12 is the covenant with Abraham. And you could say that chapter 12 is like the hinge chapter. So chapters 1 through 11, we see human history from Adam to Abraham, the human race. We see creation, fall, the judgment, the flood, uh, the judgment of Babel, the Tower of Babel up through chapter 11. And beginning in chapter 12, we see God choosing sovereignly choosing a man, uh, Abraham, and that God made covenantal promises, not just to him personally, but through his lineage that were going to be fulfilled. So from chapter 12 through chapter 50, we see God's beginnings and workings uh, as he is developing uh, the ultimate redemption that would follow in Jesus Christ. All right. So there we see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We see the patriarchs, all right? And so that's kind of how a simple way that you can kind of divide the book of Genesis. Again, you can get it if you have a study Bible, uh, MacArthur, Ryrie, you'll see much more detailed outlines. But just as a simple way, chapter 12 is kind of serves as kind of the dividing line between um, Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 is the preparatory, is the... the uh, the condition of hum humankind, of uh, things that were uh, bad, reflective of the depravity of humankind. But in chapter 12, we see the hope that God was, was not, I don't want to say beginning to work, because he was always at work, but we see the first indicator of his promise in working through and fulfilling uh, his promise that he gave back in Genesis 3.15 that we'll look at in a little bit. But God beginning his work and beginning his covenantal promise through Abraham. Now, Genesis has a lot of different themes, and I've just tried to break down the big ones. Obviously, Genesis, one big theme is creation. Creation. Now, when we get maybe next week and maybe in the next couple weeks, it seems like we may go a little slower in this first chapter or so, and then we'll kind of pick up the pace a little bit. But one thing I'm not going to do, because it, it, would be, it would be impossible, 
is to get into all the minutia issues concerning creationism, okay? That in itself would be an entire 10 to 12 week study. And uh, I'm not sure I'm up for that, and I'm not sure you're up for it. I'm not minimizing the importance, but I certainly know that there are much better and well capable of people who have handled those issues, and those things are accessible. And I'll probably give you a few recommendations next week that if you want to look around at some more details concerning creation and the, authentic, the proof of the creation record versus uh, natural selection or evolution and all those issues. Just so you know, I believe God created, okay? I believe that the account of Scripture is the account that we are to take. But we'll talk about, even among Christians, where there are some differences of understanding that are legitimate, uh, at least in a general sense, and uh, maybe some helpful things of where, how you can sort the issues out. But we're not going to get into kind of the, the, uh, the you know, some of, those, some of those details that are the aspects of science and creation and whatnot. Um, so, but we will talk about creation, and we will try to limit to just how the Lord portrays the creation act and the work of creation there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But one thing we do know is that the theme of creation demonstrates that God is in control, that God is the creator, that God is sovereign. God is presented as the one who created everything out of nothing. The Latin term you may come across is ex nihilo. That means he created um, all things out of nothing. Uh, there are scientists who make claims of being able to create life in the lab. Well, they can't create, nobody can create anything out of nothing. Only God can do it. God spoke and reality took place. They're all using existing, um, what I say, elements to maybe create something, a hybrid or something. But only God uh, is portrayed as one who created, not out of using existing matter, but simply as the creator and demonstration of his power. So creation is certainly a big theme there, especially in the very beginning, showing God's power. One of the things that we see is that God is separate from his creation. He's not a mixture of the creation. He's not, uh, as some, you may have heard the term pantheism, where it is, uh, uh, you know, some people that are really extreme into uh, the environment, nature, almost have a pantheistic view of God, where they really uh, see God not in the trees, but actually God is the trees. God is the animals. God is nature. That's a pantheistic view. Uh, God is never identified as being uh, a part of creation. He is the one who stands separate from creation. He is the one who has uh, spoken and made that which did not exist come into existence. Uh, he is active. He is portrayed as the active creator. He's not passive. He's not... Uh, what is, uh, is referred to as a deist. A lot of our founding fathers, um, Franklin, uh, Benjamin Franklin and uh, Jefferson and others, when they talk about believing in God, you kind of have to kind of get beneath the surface of what actually kind of God were they referring to. Their concept of God was a God that was much, uh, they certainly would, they wouldn't have called it this, but they would have certainly said, yeah, we believe in the designer, the intelligent designer. But we, but we believe that God has created these natural laws and he's removed himself. So everything that happens is just the result of these natural laws that have their origins in God. But he is not active in his creation. We'll see how that um, doesn't seem to jive with the creation account in uh, Genesis uh, 1 through 3. So God is presented as the creator, creation. And the reason that's important is your, uh, your understanding of those first few verses in Genesis, in the beginning God, that really determines so much of how you view things thereafter. Because if somebody's not settled with accepting in the beginning God, you know, the Bible doesn't try to prove God. Uh, it just 
in the beginning God. And so our submission and acceptance of, of God as the creator, as the sovereign one, where we get a little, uh, you know, where a lot of times the debate is we want to kind of get down into the minutia and figure out, well, exactly how did this happen? And in what way did this happen? And there's so much of that that the Bible is actually silent. It doesn't tell us. I mean, we might be able to draw some understanding and conclusions from reason and science and those things. But again, we always want to make sure that we're not uh, going further than Scripture goes. And certainly uh, nothing that contradicts the fact that takes away from God's purpose and creation. So we'll, again, we'll, we'll dig into more of that later. But it speaks of God's sovereign uh, control over all things. Human life, the creation of uh, mankind, Adam and Eve, creation of humanity in the image of God. Uh, you may have heard the term Imago Dei, which is Latin that speaks about the image of God, that we are created in the image of God. We are uh, not just, uh, we're, we're different than the animal life, uh, that we're different than the the giraffes and the cats and the dogs or whatever else was there in that, uh, that Adam name there in creation, but that God breathed life, he, that man became a living soul, that man, humanity, man, I'm using mankind to include uh, both male and female, humankind that reflected the imagery of God, that we are reflective of being image bearers of God. That's the reason, again, the history of uh, Judeo-Christianity, Jewish Theology and Christian theology uh, put a high value on human life because everyone, regardless of race, uh, they, we are all created in the image of God. We are all image bearers of God. And that certainly is a foundation laid out there in Genesis. One of the things that we'll also see there in the beginning in this human life is the fact that God designed in the beginnings here, talking about origins, that it was God's purpose in the beginning in his, in his planning and in his development of creation, in his planning and development of humanity, that the, uh, uh, the, the beginnings of this and how this would work, that God designed humanity as male and female, and that God actually ordained what we would call the, the family unit, that male and female were intended to procreate. And that the family unit composed of one man, one biological man, and one biological woman bearing children was something that God had designed from the very beginning. And when you think about um, how Satan attacks the family historically, and even now the redefining of family that's certainly a, a big part of our culture, you have to go back and say, what was God's intent intent? In what he designed. What was his purpose? And how did God design, design that? And do we have any right to redefine that which God identified? And what was the purpose in that creation of that family? Husband, wife, children. And we see those there as part of God's creation in, with humanity. Now we know when we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3 changes things. And chapter 3 uh, introduces the theme of uh, sin. Sometimes we refer to it as the fall of man in a theological sense. Uh, Adam and Eve were created innocent. Uh, God gave them an ability to, a capacity to make choices. Uh, sin entered the world in a specific place and time in history. It changed the relational dynamic between Adam, Eve, between his, the human creation and their relationship with God, uh, the, uh, they fell from a state of innocence before God to a state of separation and sin. Uh, sin resulted in death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. And this death and this, the sin uh, was something that uh, we know that Paul gives us understanding of how this transferred to human, humankind. It wasn't just an isolation of their sin, but because of what they did, that sin uh, went through the downline of all humanity. Remember what uh, in Romans 5, and I think I have part of it there on your outline, 
Uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men, all mankind, because all sin. We'll talk about, well, what does that mean back in Genesis 3? What does it mean when he says, all have sinned? I wasn't there. How could I have sinned? I wasn't even born yet. How can I be identified as being uh, uh, sinned when uh, I wasn't even in the garden? Well, the Bible says you were. The Bible says you were in the garden in Adam. Okay? And we'll we'll talk about that. And a big theme that would be uh, heretical to skip would be the fact of the theme of covenant that plays such a huge part in the Bible, but we see how the theme of covenant is so central in its beginnings there in the book of Genesis. Genesis is about relationships. This is about God and his relationships with his people. Covenants, the covenants of Scripture, provide the unifying uh, principles uh, that we understand of how God operates, the work of redemption, of Scripture, all those things of God's, how he defines relationship between himself and mankind. Again, I mentioned about Genesis 12, then, that where we see God's covenant with Abraham and why that's such a, a big thing and why that's so pivotal in really setting the course for the work of redemption that will follow from Genesis 12 on through the book of Revelation. And we'll obviously spend some time talking about that. God uniquely calls Abraham, fulfills. Uh, you know, when you read Genesis 3.15, remember Genesis 3.15? I know I have it somewhere in there. I don't really have it right here. But there in the garden, at man's darkest hour, uh, God promises, in fact, the uh, Bible uh, teachers look at Genesis 3.15 as the first prophecy, if you will, that gives us a preview of coming attractions of the Redeemer that God has prepared to come to redeem us from our sin. And then that this, in Genesis 3.15, it speaks about how God spoke to the serpent. We know the serpent is identified in Revelation as Satan. And God told this word to the serpent that there will be one who would be the seed of the woman. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. This seed of the woman uh, that will, you will bruise his heel. In other words, you will, you will uh, what do I want to say? You will, uh, you will wound him, but he will come. And the NIV uses the term, and he will crush your head. So that's the first preview of God's redemptive purposes in Genesis 3.15. But we go a long way from several chapters by the time we get to chapter 12. And we're wondering, well, God, when are you going to do this work? How are you going to do this? When is this going to happen? And so when we come to chapter 12 and God's covenant with Abraham, we begin to see and how God is going to do that through the promises that he's making through Abraham. Remember what he tells Abraham and says, through your downline, through your seed, I will make you into a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Make you a great nation. Well, there is no nation. There is no nation when he tells them that. But God makes those promises, but they're covenantal in nature and God's dealings with mankind and his people, rather, are covenantal in nature. I think on the outline there, I forgot I had put Genesis 3.15 right under there somewhere. Do you see that? Um, and, and the reason I put the companion verse of Galatians 3.16 is because Scripture is the best commentary. Do you see that? Genesis 3.15, and this is the word of the Lord that the Lord spoke uh, there in the garden to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity, uh, I will put separation. Really, enmity is hatred between you and the woman. Now, we believe uh, ultimately that the woman that the Messiah would be uh, Mary that the incarnation, we know that uh, from, uh, obviously, uh, uh, Scripture. And between your seed and her seed. Notice the devil has his seed and her seed. Do you see seed capitalized? So that's referring to a person. He shall 
bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Like the NIV, it says you that he shall crush your head. I like that idea. Uh, now, you're like, well, who is this? Who is he talking about? Well, Galatians 3.16, Paul uh, helps us here when as he's teaching about the promises of Abraham, he says, now to Abraham and his seed, capital S, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as one. And to your seed, and he identifies that seed that back in Genesis 3.15 of who God is talking about. He says, and to your seed, who is what? Christ. Okay? So don't miss that. We'll, we'll dig down into that when we come to that chapter. Because that's a very important scripture in talking about the work of redemption. All right? All right, in your outline, what is the theological importance of the book of Genesis? There's a lot of things here. I like a quote by Arthur Pink in his commentary on Hebrews, Gleanings in Genesis. He says, in Genesis we have in germ form, we might would say in um, seed form, but in germ form, in Genesis, in germ form, almost all of the great doctrines which are afterwards fully developed in the, book, in the books of Scripture that follow. That in Genesis, all the great truths and doctrines that we have in the rest of the 65 books, we see them all in, in some form here in the book of Genesis. And there's a, a little list there. Uh, we see certainly we talk about God as creator. We see God presented as a covenant God. We see a first hint in the name Elohim, to the plurality of the Godhead, the Trinity. Uh, we see certainly the schemes of Satan, the fallen nature of man. Uh, we see God's sovereign election and saving grace. God sovereignly chose Abraham. We see God's work of election. We see justification by faith that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, the need for holiness, uh, the power of prayer, even some see in Genesis 5.24, in the story of Enoch, a little bit of maybe an illusion, maybe a picture of what many might would see as a, the saint's rapture. Remember, Enoch walked with God, and, and he was not. <laughs> he was not. Some see that uh, physically catching up as perhaps a, an example that right before the judgment, that Enoch as maybe a type of the church... Uh, we see God's judgment on sin. We certainly see the promise of uh, the Savior, of the Redeemer. Uh, we see the priesthood of the Savior. Uh, we even see in Abraham uh, the uh, blessing of through him all the nations will be blessed. Certainly God's uh, ultimate fulfillment of that in the Great Commission of missions or evangelism to bring the gospel to the world. We see that again in seed form. One thing I do want to highlight, because I think it's important is when people dig into the book of Genesis, or especially the first five books of Moses, is one of the things that uh, some, in order to undermine the truthfulness of the Word of God, is to question or to circumvent um, the reliability that there, Moses actually was the author of the book of Genesis. Uh, a lot of, again, more progressive, liberal, and this isn't anything new. This has really been going back to the uh, 1800s, uh, basically developed and said, well, uh, really, Moses wasn't the author because as we looked, they call this critical, uh, a critical understanding of Scripture that uh, they've said, well, really, Genesis was piecemealed by several different people. It wasn't, Moses wasn't the single author. Now, we certainly have no problem with the fact that, uh, I mean, when it speaks about Moses dying and his burial, obviously somebody had to write that. I don't think Moses came out from the grave and, hey, let me just finish that, you know. Um, so we don't have a problem with, with those type of things. But Moses, uh, the undermining of Moses as the author, and part of this is kind of a, um, a pattern we see with those that want to undermine what we would refer to as the 
authority of Scripture? Did, and what was, what was the thing that Satan in Genesis chapter 3, what was his famous phrase to undermine Scripture? Did God, what, really say? And he hasn't changed his tactic because, again, if he can undermine the Word of God, if he can undermine the Word of God, he's undermine, undermining the authority of God. So undermining the authority of God, and if I can say, well, you know, we don't really know who said this. We really not, can't rely on the fact that maybe uh, it came as a word of God. Maybe it was just, uh, you know, cobbled together by a bunch of uh, nomads living in the wilderness, and they pulled a little of here, a little of here, a little of there, and tried to create a sense of understanding and identity for trying to explain nature and, and their existence or whatever, and, and the religion was kind of birthed out of that then you basically have a, you have a sense of, of a man-oriented uh, origin of the book of Genesis versus something that I think the Bible says is God's divine authoritative word. Let me give you some uh, examples of that in Scripture. And again, I think this is a... Uh, 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 people that do this, I'll just make this side note, I think oftentimes... People that want to undermine or make uh, allowances or perhaps uh, um, buy in maybe to something that uh, undermines the authenticity of the Word of God, I think it's more of a moral issue than an intellectual issue. Because I think if they really applied themselves intellectually to scholarship, I think there's certainly enough evidence that would counterweight uh, those that would question, I, I think there certainly is great uh, scholarship on the side of uh, the authenticity of the authorship of, of Moses. But remember Romans 1, I don't think I have it in your outline, but remember it says, it speaks about uh, the depravity of humankind. It speaks about how humankind suppress the truth of God. Even though they're made aware of God in a sense of as creator, there you go, creator, the Bible says that they suppress the truth because he says, for what can be made known plain about God, um, they intentionally suppress it, that his invisible attributes, his power are made known, but because of the suppression, but God has certainly made himself in the creative order that he uh, that there is a God, that there is natural or that there is an orderliness in creation. I mean, we have a 24-hour cycle. We have the sun, the, the moon, and we have a very. We're not living in a chaos, okay? Uh, that he says that mankind is without what excuse before God. Romans 1:18 through 20. So uh, keep that in mind as far as what people's motives are for always seeking to undermine and plow through and to uh, devalue the authority of Scripture as the Word of God. Now, with that said about Moses, the reason I point that out is because one of the uh, big areas that has been attacked really for uh, a couple of centuries now has been the first 11 chapters, really the first three or four chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, certainly with the advent in the late 19th century with uh, Charles Darwin and uh, uh, natural selection or evolution as giving an alternative way for how we got here, uh, that really everything just came out of spontaneous creation, out of nothing, uh, that, you know, over time some slime uh, got enough energy to get up on the seashore and up on the shore, and that slime flapped around for a few billion years, and out of that slime, they developed some arms or some fins or something, and throw a few more billion years. You know, have you ever noticed that scientists, if they're not sure how something connects, just add a few billion years. Something probably happened. Now, I have no problem if somebody wants to define evolution as saying within a certain species, there's historical change. In other words, you look in the dog family. I like dogs, right? You look in the dog family, there's multiple varieties of canines, but they're all dogs. You don't have a dog becoming a lizard or a lizard becoming a dog. So again, 
It depends when somebody talks about within the species, and I don't want to get off into that because that's probably more than I really want to get into. So I don't think you need to check your brain at the door when it comes to science, but, but if you're starting from the standpoint of saying, well, I don't believe really that God has any effect on creation, that we all just kind of somehow got here by chance, that that is your starting point. As I said, in the beginning, God, if you don't really rectify and make a decision of what you believe about the very first verse of Genesis in the Bible, everything's going to be messed up from that point forward. And so uh, that's a challenge for us. But when we come to the authenticity of the book of Genesis, I think it's helpful to say, well, what did Jesus think about this? Did he affirm the authorship of, of uh, Genesis? And there's several, there's a couple of examples where he affirmed the authorship of the book of Genesis. Uh, Matthew 19, 4 through 8, while he's having a, he's being questioned by the Pharisee in divorce, but notice in Jesus' answer in Matthew 19, and just, I think I may just have verse 4 there, where he says to them in rebuttal, have you not read, okay, so that means there's something in canonized written form, have you not read that he who created them to the Genesis account of creation. Jesus referred to it like, not that it was a debatable issue, but like it was an accepted factual truth that they at least could agree on. Remember, they're, they're arguing about marriage and divorce, so they come to agreement. And notice also that in any debate that Jesus uh, might would have, the, uh, uh, that he cites the Old Testament scripture, but here he's citing Genesis, as kind of the final word uh, of authoritative truth. Another example there with Jesus is in Mark 13, 19. Do I have these in your outline? Okay, all right. I thought I did, but I just want to make sure. Notice again, he's affirming the Genesis account here. Verses, uh, verse 19 in Mark 13, For in those days there will be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now. I just want you to see that Jesus affirms uh, the creation that God created, the creation account that we have codified in the book of Genesis. The Apostle Paul, what did he believe about the historicity of the book of Genesis and the accounts there? 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14, he cites and says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, he's citing Adam and Eve as what? Real historical people. He wasn't saying, now, I know some of you don't believe this. I know there's some sign. No, he, he's stating it as accepted knowledge. In fact, and certainly as Paul, like Jesus, some people would explain and say, well, going back to Jesus and even let more Jesus than Paul, they would say, well, Jesus certainly, all he was doing was he was accommodating himself to the limited knowledge and ignorance of the culture and the people of that time. So think about the ramifications of that. So you're saying Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus was not truthful, but he would cite something that he knows is not authentic and true. Now, this isn't in your outline, but to me, this is always something to consider as well. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, this is again, not in your outline. You remember you have Jesus who, after his baptism, he went where for 40 days and 40 nights? Went into the wilderness where he fasted and he prayed. And what took place in that wilderness, in that desert there? Remember, he encountered who? He encountered the Satan. He encountered the devil. And we have, you know, a recorded dialogue both in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Satan, as we have recorded, uh, threw three pitches to him. He's hungry. He's fasting. You know, I fast for 40 minutes. I'm ready to eat, right? Um, Turn these stones into bread. And then secondly, he said, you know, if you are the son of God, uh, leap from the pinnacle of the temple. Because again, you know, Satan... Uh, he can quote scripture too. He can't quote it accurately, but he can quote scripture. And, you know, he quoted, said the angels will capture you. 
uh, the implication was, look, you can avoid this whole suffering thing. Everybody will see who you are. You'll come down in the arms of the angels and people will see you and, you know, you'll be, you'll, you'll be on your way to kingship of Messiah. And then the third one was what? If you bow and worship me, if you worship me, what's really what Satan was after, if you read the origin, that's what he's really after. If you just, if you just acknowledge, worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms, all these kingdoms. Showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, in each of those accounts, what was Jesus' response? What did he use to respond? He used the word of God. Do you know specifically what book of the Bible? He used one book of the Bible for all three. Do you know what book of the Bible he used to quote from? Obviously, you don't. He used the book of Deuteronomy. All three of those are from the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers. Right? Right? What did I say? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what I meant. All right. Now, what's interesting is, again, this is just, this is something somebody brought out. I thought it was interesting. He used each one of those, and each one of those statements began, it is written. It is written. Now, do you think that if Jesus was relying in a battle royale, if you will, in this dramatic moment there between the Son of God and Satan, and out of Jesus' arsenal, he said, it is written, quoting from a book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, it just seems like Satan might have said, you got to be kidding me. You're quoting from that? You really think Moses, I mean, don't you know that he didn't even write that? That's not the word of God. He didn't say anything about the authenticity. He didn't say anything about the authority. He was shut down every time because of the authority and the weight of the word of God. Now, I just find that interesting in that as an account of one of the books that is attributed to Moses. And again, not just that the authority is in Moses, but Moses as being a unique messenger, a divine conduit, if you will, in the recording of the word of God and what has been passed down to us. The Apostle Paul, I mentioned the 1 Timothy 2, 2 Corinthians eleven three. He again affirms the historicity of uh, Eve. He said, but I'm in 11.3, he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve and refers to that uh, as a historical truth. Um, notice in Acts 17.24, this is Paul in Athens and he's sharing the gospel to a group of non-believers, a group of people who have no Jewish roots whatsoever and you would think that would be where he would really want to soft pedal any biblical concept of God as creator. Like they would just laugh him off the stage. But at the very beginning, what does Paul do? In verse 24, he begins this message to these pagans in Athens. The God who did what? Who made the world and everything in it. So the Apostle Paul certainly affirmed the Genesis account like Jesus. Peter, I have a reference there where Peter affirmed the, uh, the historicity of the flood by speaking about Noah and the preparation that God made with Noah and the account there. So all again, I, in that, and there's many more, but all I want you to see is that the weight of the New Testament, certainly Jesus being at the head of it, they certainly affirmed the historical reliability of the book of Genesis and the accounts thereof, all right? Let me give you kind of some final things here. Again, this is all just a little bit of setting the table, if you will. Something we want to try to do as we walk through Genesis is we always want to make sure that we're highlighting uh, how we see Christ in the book of Genesis. I don't mean trying to uh, spiritualize some 
you know, something that doesn't mean anything. But really, how do we see Jesus portrayed? Uh, and there's just a few principles here I'd remind you of. Uh, Jesus being the key, not only to the Old Testament, but certainly the book of Genesis. Number one, Jesus claims that he himself is the subject of the Old Testament. Some of my favorite scriptures there from Luke 24. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? This is resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. and talking to those uh, unidentified disciples there. But notice what he says, verse 27. And beginning with what? Moses and all the prophets. That's a way they designated what we would call the Old Testament. Moses and all the prophets. Okay, He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... What did he do? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things, what? Concerning himself. And then he goes down and repeats it in verse 44. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that's just a reminder That for us, on this side of the new covenant, on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the finished work of Christ, we have an advantage that nobody else in previous covenants had. We have the advantage of understanding from Genesis forward that Jesus is the key to understanding uh, the Old Testament scriptures. So we come to Genesis, we certainly want to make sure that we see and look for where, I don't mean look for him like where's Waldo. I mean look for him and say, where is Jesus identified? And that's why I brought up uh, uh, Genesis 3.15. And certainly Paul in uh, Galatians 3.16 connects those two dots. Jesus said in John 5.39, you study the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees. You study the scriptures thoroughly Because you think in them you possess eternal life, but he says it's in these same scriptures that testify about me. What scriptures? We would say the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't uh, written. Secondly, Jesus' teachings consistently point to the Old Testament as that which he fulfills. And also, I would add, he points to it as as with authority. I think there's some, at least 14... uh, 14 different Old Testament books that Jesus quotes from in the Gospels. So Jesus not only was conversant with the Old Testament scriptures, but he's quoting from it and always quoting from it as a final authoritative word. Remember, there was always that tension between the traditions of the religious leaders, but he always trumped those traditions with, but what did God say? God's word says, all right? Thirdly, The Old Testament does not stand on its own uh, because it is incomplete without its conclusion and fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. In other words, we can't truly and properly understand the Old Testament apart from Christ. Do you realize what a tremendous gift and blessing the book of Hebrews is to the Christian? How the book of Hebrews, when we did that study, how the book of Hebrews connects the dots of the work of Christ with the priesthood, the tabernacle, all those things that we see their fulfillment in Christ, that all those what are sometimes referred to as shadows and types, we see the reality. That's Paul's argument in Colossians about people that want to kind of go back to the law as a standard of righteousness and a way to serve God. He says, why would you give up the reality that you have in Christ, to go back to a shadow. And I always use the illustration of me, like taking a picture of Sherry and going to Longhorn and getting a steak and having dinner with a picture of Sherry when I'm leaving the reality at home. He says, why do you want to have, why do you want to dwell in the shadows when you have now the light that has been brought forth in Christ, you see? So in other words, the Old Testament is the Word of God, but it comes into its full uh, flowering, its full fulfillment, going back to Luke 24, when we see its fulfillment in Christ. And we have that advantage. Remember what the Bible says, that saints of long ago would longed to have what we have. 
We have such great truths and precious promises in understanding those things. Hebrews chapter 1 that I have there and speaks of that finality, that God is not still composing books of the Bible. He says, long ago, Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In other words, dispensationally, if you will, that was what he did in that dispensation. But in these last days, in other words, now he has spoken to us by his son. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I depend on other people, but they say that the way that that is written in the English doesn't have the kind of clout and weight that the Greek would have, where they say there's a sense of finality and weight that he has finally, decisively spoken once and for all time completely in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the capstone of everything that is preceded. That without Jesus, you don't have the key. You, don't, you can't understand the scriptures. That's the reason those that are uh, among the Jews, how they talk about when they come to discover Jesus as Messiah, how it's like all the pieces all of a sudden uh, fit together. There's an alignment of all these wonderful truths when they come to the faith and receiving Jesus as Messiah. The last thing I have there real quick is that in Genesis, we see that what begins in Genesis is a process. A process of, uh, or a progress, maybe, if you will, of redemption. Uh, everything isn't all done at one time. As you study scripture and you begin to understand how the parts fit in the whole, you see God's progressive way that he is unfolding and developing. Remember, God promised through Abraham... Uh, promise to make him a nation. What do you need for a nation? Well, you need land. You need land. And a nation has to have laws. It has to have somebody running the place. It has to have a king. That didn't happen all at once. But all through, when you read the Old Testament, don't get lost in the weeds. Keep in mind, what is God doing? How is he fulfilling Genesis 3.15? What's he doing here? How's he moving the ball forward to the ultimate purpose and destiny that he promised in Genesis 3.15 where he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would be victorious? And so Genesis 3.15 there in the NIV, I'll just read it again, that God addressing and giving this prophetic word, even though he's addressing it as a, addressing it as a judgment Against uh, Satan, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, you will strike, and you will strike his heel. Now, I love when you take that and go to the book of Revelation and see where, how do we see, how do we see the culmination? Is? How do we get a preview of coming attractions? You know, uh, it, it's kind of nice to be able to read the end of the book, isn't it? You ever skip and read the end of the book? Say, I want to see if, you know, how this thing ends, right? Or fast forward or whatever. Well, in Genesis, and there's several places, but in Genesis 15, I have the scripture there. Now, if you look back in chapter 14, which isn't written there, but in chapter 14 and verse 1, you have John that writes, Then I looked, and there was before me the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So this is a victorious culmination of the, of the victory of Jesus Christ. And when you come to chapter 15, remember, don't forget Genesis 3.15, but now we're coming to this vision of the finality of the victory in Christ. And John says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels and the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing these Symbols of trying to describe in words, glowing with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God. Now look at this. And they sang the song of God's servant, who? And of the Lamb. Now the song that is attributed there is a song of deliverance that we find in Exodus 15, where they were singing and rejoicing about their deliverance out of Egypt. But here, what was only in prototype, listen to me, what was only a prototype 
in Exodus 15 about delivered from Egypt, we see in its full culmination in Revelation 15 and on of God's full deliverance in Christ, of redeeming a people for himself and the fulfillment of what was said in Genesis 3.15 that he would be victorious and crush the head of the serpent and that Jesus will reign. I think that's a wonderful truth that we should rejoice and be reminded of. So Genesis is where it all, all got started and where it all went bad. But I'm glad that in the midst of the bad news, God gives us good news that he promised Jesus.